Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Amen. Thank you, Jason and Joel. Take your Bibles this morning, please, and let's go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're looking at an important topic. Jesus answers some questions to a religious ruler about eternal life. John chapter 3, we've read a few of these verses. John chapter 3 and verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and this ruler of the Jews came to Jesus at night because he had many questions. And I was reading this passage as I do and studying for the morning message as is my custom And often as a pastor, when I read through a passage, I'm no different than you are. Yes, I've been to Bible college, but many of you have as well, and I've got to do what you do. I have a true confession. I have no advantage over you because of my office or my title. I have to dig and work at it, and just like you do when you want to understand the text. And it's a wonderful thing God's called us to, is to dig in and uh, try to understand what God is saying. And certainly this topic of all topics is the theme of all themes, eternal Life. We're going to look at this morning as a man came with questions to the Lord Jesus about eternal life. Father, we pray that you would help us today as we look at this uh, passage that really surrounds the one verse that most folks, even those who are perhaps unbelievers, know in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You explain these things to Uh, to a man with honest questions, and I pray this morning you would solidify the truths of this verse in our hearts. Thank you. You've given us a way by which we can access the eternal glories of heaven, sinners, the likes of us, and we're grateful that you came and made a way by your sacrifice for us to reach heaven. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to enjoy the context around the verse that we all know so well, John 3.16. Thank you for this a text, we pray for your help this morning in Jesus' name, amen. I don't believe preaching really ought to be just about happy little stories and positive thinking. Uh, really, it is about the truth revealed. It's not about my life, perhaps, or even illustrations. When I get to study, and I've got to do what you do, I've got to read it and reread it and pray, God, you're the writer of this, you're the author of this book, so help me understand it. That's what I do. And then I consult a few of my dead friends. Uh, these are commentators that I have, and in my office, their books, and, and I read their, their perspective on things, and then I pray, Lord, as I come, I don't want my opinion to be foisted upon the congregation of Bible Baptists. I want your truth, the force of the passage, what you intended to say. And I began to study this, and I thought, verse 4, what does it mean you're born of water and of the Spirit? And then what does verse 8 mean, the wind bloweth? I don't know, what does that have to do with eternal salvation? And then I was really mystified, verse 14, as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man. What does an evil serpent have to do with the precious, lovely Lord Jesus? Well, we need to go to work this morning, uncover the truths about these essential, important doctrines concerning Of course, this verse that we all know and love, for God so loved the world. What's the context, the setting? We've already talked about that 
As we begin our series, a journey through the book of John, we've already talked about the theme verse. You see it on the, uh, or this really on the screen behind me. From the end of the book of John, these things are written, right? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. Raise your hand this morning. I know it's a, a kind of a foggy, gray, cloudy, rainy day, but if you have life in Christ and you know that, raise your hand. These things were written, thank you, that we might know that we have eternal life. Isn't it great to know? It's a blessing to know that. And so the book of John specifically was written that you might know. Last time we met, we talked about Jesus surprising us. Jesus meek and mild as he walked into the outer court of the temple, his first visit as, of course, in the adult ministry. And he just fashioned a whip and ran out the money changers he wanted to know the passion of the temple was for worship. And worship of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of glory. You know, you can come to church and miss that. You can. It can be about uh, just duty for you. It could be about something else. Uh, but we're here to worship the Lord. So he wanted the folks to understand that he was the reason, not just for the season, but for all of our worship. Today, we meet a man who's confused a bit. The Lord says, you must be born again. Let's read the verses again that Michael read for us earlier, beginning with verse uh, 1. We read that. The Pharisee came. His name was Nicodemus. His name meant a victor, and he was a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these things, these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And then Jesus turns the table and says, well, I want to tell you something, knowing the heart of man. He said, verily, I say unto you, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, the elder statesman, the ruler, the Pharisee of Pharisees, says, how can this be? <laughs> he doesn't understand truly, does he? And so we're going to see this repartee, this discussion that the Lord has with Nicodemus. Really, it's the context. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, this passage is really the context for John 3.16. It's the discussion with this religious leader. Well, uh, by now, the Lord has, got, uh, has gathered quite a reputation, not just because He's run folks out of the... That's unusual for a religious leader to clear the courtyard of the... So, in Jerusalem proper, there's a uh, people are, especially the religious uppity-ups, they're rattling their, uh, their gums, bumping their gums a little bit, talking about this man who's not only done miracles and more than one. If you've been following in John, you know that there's more than just one, although it seems like the only miracle he's done, according to John, is that he's turned water into wine, chapter 2. But we know from the end of chapter 2, Verse 23 says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw what? The miracle or miracles, plural. Jesus had already done a lot of miracles. And so his reputation was growing as the miracle worker from Nazareth of all places, Galilee of all places. And so people are talking, especially the religious leaders. And the news about this unusual man has reached one of the leaders in the Sanhedrin. Let me explain to you by way of introduction this morning. The Sanhedrin was a group of uh, religious leaders comprised mainly or composed mainly of 
of Pharisees. The Pharisees were, in that day, what I call custodians of the law. They were tasked with making sure the people remained pure and orthodox to the Mosaic Code. They loved rules. How many of you just love rules? All the teenagers' hands going up. Uh, They loved the idea that we're keeping Israel pure to the Mosaic law of civil government, moral ethics, and they were the policemen of this. In fact, they loved rules so much they added more and more. If one rule is good, why not more? 613, more or less. And they were the ones that in Jerusalem proper and outskirts, they were the ones that when people saw them coming, aha, straighten up. Here comes the policeman of the law. They knew it. They knew it well. And to them, they believed that their job was to enforce the law. In fact, they had so much power, this body of 71 elders, religious leaders, experts in the law, that they could haul you in if they saw you not tithing enough of your mint. (laughs) Or they could haul you in for questioning, and more than that, they could incarcerate you if they thought you were overstepping, violating the law. The only thing they could not do, this was Roman purview, is they could not put you to death. But they had great power. People were afraid of them. They were experts in the law. I want you to notice, first of all, the curiosity of this Pharisee. Look at verses 1 and 2. He came to Jesus by night. This is Nicodemus. And he said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. He is curious and he is polite. No man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, many preachers have picked on Nicodemus as a coward for coming to Jesus at night, probably because he didn't want to be seen by those in his council as one who's even attempting to get questions answered from God or from this man, Jesus, who is gaining popularity and reputation. That may be one theory, but we have no, really there's no reason in the Bibles we study it, to ever suspect Nicodemus of cowardice. In fact, at the end of his life, Nicodemus is one who stands up for the Lord in, the own, in, in his own council, the Sanhedrin. And then later, when Christ is put to death, he's the one that helps Joseph of Arimathea. Some of you remember that. Find a place for his burial. So we see him at the end of the gospel account, really standing up for the Lord. So to call him a coward, maybe stepping a little bit beyond what his true character was, but he comes with a question. We're a lot of question and observation. He starts out politely with courtesy. He says, we know that uh, these things we've heard, the miracles you're doing, uh, no man can do these things except, what does the text say? Except God be with him. He casts a bone. In other words, I'll give you this. Uh, From what I know about you, sir, God is apparently with you. That's a whole lot different than saying you are God, isn't it? He's got curiosity. He's got questions. Uh, He's just curious, polite. Uh, Jesus, uh, who knows what's in his heart, knows his real questions, his real concern is, who are you? And 
Every Jew, well, most every Jew knew that God through Moses and Abraham had promised the land, the expansion of the land, the kingdom to the Jew. They were covenanted people, and every Jew wanted to know if and when the Messiah was coming, and if he was here, they wanted a front row seat on what God would do, Messiah would do. So there is this curiosity in his mind, is this indeed the Messiah? Because if you are, I want to I want a position in the new the new realm and kingdom. So he's curious. Now, secondly, I want you to notice the perception of Jesus. The perception of Jesus. He even before Nicodemus asked any questions about that particularly, about who you are, Jesus goes right to the heart. Do you know that this morning where you're seated, God sees your heart? He knows why you're here. He knows if you're a Christian or not. The most important question in all the world is, do I know, am I personally related to the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I in His, am I in his family or not? Jesus saw right to this unsaved man's heart, although he was religious and a ruler of the Jews. He was lost, just as lost as you can be. I was singing, I was singing with the congregation last night, downtown Atlanta, these glorious Christmas hymns. And I've never, I've never been in a setting where there was better acoustics and better sound in a, sorry, orchestra, better orchestra. We've got an orchestra here, but they had all, I mean, they probably paid for most of their orchestra players to be their professionals. That building resonated with the song of the glories of the coming of the Christ. We sat in the balcony, and I think my feet began to elevate a little bit. I said, honey, we've got, I don't know if it's legal or not, but we've got to video this. I hate to say they outsung the Baptist last night, but they did. But you know that you can sing about the glories of Christ and never know Him? Jesus knew what was in His heart because the end of chapter 2 tells us that He doesn't need, verse 25, anyone to testify of man, for He knew what was in man, and He knew Nicodemus, and He knew His need. He knows yours too. He knows exactly why you're here. And Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus how to get into the kingdom of God. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, without even going down this road about, oh, you're, no, I'm not with God, I am God. He says this, I say unto you, verily, verily, the word in the, the Greek is amen and amen. Most assuredly, without negotiation, without argumentation, this is true, verily, verily. I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You want in the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, because you want station and status. Unless you're born again, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That's true for us today. In fact, we worked at the, some of us worked at the fair with the peppers at the little evangelism booth. And most folks don't come to the fair to be evangelized, but it's a joy to do that. We have... Uh, they have, excuse me, at the fair, some attention getters to stop people on their way to the Ferris wheel to talk to us about Jesus. I enjoy that time. 
Not everybody's cup of tea, I suppose, but I enjoy talking to people, even at the fair, about Christ. There's three boxes that they use uh, there at the, the booth to get the attention. And on top of all these boxes with three doors, there's this little sign, take a test. Uh, things that God cannot do. Three things God cannot do. Oh, man, that pulls especially the teenagers in. Every once in a while, a parent will stop. Three things. God can do anything. He's God. So they opened the first. I said, well, come on, let's take a test. They take a minute and they stop at the first door and they pull it open. Well, God cannot lie. That's true. That's true. God can't lie. And so they know they've already been pulled in a little bit, this attention grabber. The second door opens up. God can never change. That's true. God never changes. And then the third door comes from John chapter 3. God can never let anybody into heaven who has not been, what? Born again. And that's where we turn the tables and ask them point blank, has there ever been a time in your life where you've received the life of Christ? Have you been born again? And you ought to hear the answers we hear. Ever been witnessing and you run across somebody who's religious but lost? And they'll tell you, well, I, I've been to church. Oh, I, I, I'm good with God. Why? I'm in the Sanhedrin. <laughs> I, I've, I'm one of the 71. I've, I've been to church all my life, and I've been baptized. One man said, I've been baptized three ways. I've been dunked, poured, and sprinkled. If anybody's good, I'm good, one man told me. He said, I, I know I'm saved. I said, how do you know? He said, well... I've seen an angel, and I said, that's nothing. I live with an angel. There we go. Had to get that in. That's not in the notes, but that's appropriate. He said, yes, I've, I've seen an angel. And I, my, the hair on my arm stood up. It was a beautiful thing, and that's why I know that God's going to let me in, or I hear this often. I, you know, I've done a lot of good things. I really have, and I know God just loves everybody, and God's going to bring me on in question is, verse 3, have you been born again? Do you have life from God? Not have you prayed a prayer in church. Not have you given your life to God, but has He, what? Given His life to you. Are there signs of life? So the perception of Jesus is that he knows that Nicodemus truly has never been born again. And so we see then the misunderstanding. Although God, uh, although man sees on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart and he knew Nicodemus was uh, misunderstanding the truth about salvation. And that's what we see here in verses 4 and beyond. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb, think of natural birth, and be born? Verse 9, he goes on to say, how can these things be? Now, Nicodemus is, a, uh, is an educated man. He's not trying to be sarcastic. He's not trying to be silly. He's not even trying to be stupid. He is very acutely aware of all things leading up to the coming of the Messiah. He knows the Mosaic Code uh, backwards and forwards. 
And so you might think, how is it that such a man would even ask these questions? How can these, can a man enter again into his mother's womb? Certainly, that doesn't seem possible. He doesn't comprehend. All his life, all of his life, he has been working to accomplish his own righteousness. And he is appalled at the notion, uh, as he considers the illustration of a natural birth, that a baby has no part in his own birth. He's just appalled at the thought that all of his quote-unquote goodness, all of his moral law-keeping, all of his time invested in memorizing the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, and all of his life protecting and policing the law around the streets of Jerusalem have no merit whatsoever. His life has been about that. And he's holding on to his ancestry. It's enough for him to be a Jew and the Abrahamic connection, law-keeping. He was hoping that that would put him in. If you're a Catholic here this morning or you're listening today, Trusting in the seven sacraments, my heart goes out to you, just like my heart would go out as Christ's heart went out to Nicodemus. You're working so hard, and you really, some, really want to know, what else do I need to do? Because when the end for me comes, the end of life, I really do want to get in. Well, what God does is crushes uh, his whole way of thinking about righteousness. It's radical to him. It's astounding and humbling. And it crushes his way of thinking. It was so hard for him to accept the fact there's nothing that you can do, Nicodemus, to improve upon what God's gift for you is. There's nothing you can do. Well, we need to listen as the Lord explains uh, to him, really, the way of salvation, the explanation of the Savior. Look at verse 5. Again, God couples these truths for emphasis, or these words, verily, <clears throat> verily. Nicodemus, make no mistake, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. Flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. Marvel not. Don't let this astound you, uh, that you must be reborn. The wind blows where it listeth. The question we started with, what does that have to do with saving faith? The wind bloweth. You hear the sound thereof. You see the effect of it, but you can't tell where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Let's back up to this first illustration about birth. He says, flesh is flesh, and you must be born of water and of the Spirit. What does it mean? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, there are some that would say, as they try to explain, this may be the most common, natural, obvious, that uh, first of all, you've got to be born. Uh, think of the amniotic fluid in the womb. You must be born natural of water and then a spiritual birth. Now, that makes sense, but it's obvious. Everyone. Uh, how could this be a requirement? Everybody is born of the flesh. So what is the Lord? I, I tend to side with 
Harry Ironside on this particular interpretation. He says what, what the Lord means here in terms of future context as well is that you have to be born with the water of the life-giving Word, the gospel, the truth about who God is. Nicodemus, here's the regenerating gospel of life. Certainly it could mean a natural birth, but I tend to believe that the Lord is picturing this as the water, the, the water that regenerates the truth of the gospel. Who is Jesus? What did He do? Who is man? Why are we sinful? And do we need a Savior? You've got to understand the core truths, the water of the Word. Look at chapter 4. Keep your finger here, but chapter 4, He's, he's witnessing to the, the woman at the well. You know this passage well. We, we know that uh, he, he is talking to her, verse 14. He says, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him, the gospel, the truth about Jesus, shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Certainly God is referring, could be referring to this type of water. Revelation twenty two seventeen says, Whosoever will let, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely, the gospel. Ephesians 5, 27, the church is cleansed by the washing of the water by the word. And then Titus 3, 5, we're to be washed. There's the washing of regeneration. So to be born again, Jesus, I believe, is telling Nicodemus, first of all, obviously everybody is born naturally of flesh, but to be born again, there are two components necessary. Number one, you have to know the truth about who Jesus is, the washing of the gospel of truth about who Christ is. You've got to know that. No one is born again in a vacuum of truth, and so these two wonderful principles, principles go hand in hand. There has to be a knowledge of who Christ is and what He did for you who you are and why you need a Savior. There has to be that elemental truth. And then, not only the washing of the Word of life, but there has to be that work of the Spirit that brings you to life. Well, this is news to Nicodemus. He's never really heard that before. And this explanation is really hard for him because he wants to, in some way, Help God out. I remember explaining the gospel to a man. He said, really? Is it that simple? I'm supposed to believe on the Lord, confess my sin, and ask Jesus to save me? It can't be that simple. God must expect me to do something. I said, no. God has done it. D-O-N-E, the cross. You can't help him. Martin Luther said this, Why would you ever think any of your own good works could ever compare to the sacrifice of his own dear son? Such a thought in the heart of God is blasphemous. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for you and for me. It's enough. It's a finished work. And then to further complicate, complicate or advance the mystery of the mind of Nicodemus, the Lord, in verse 8, adds another illustration beyond the fact that birth is not the work of the baby. It is the mystery of life that God gives. Without the working or the energy or the will of the child, 
And then in verse 8, this almost adds a layer of greater complication in his mind and perhaps yours today. As we look at verse 8, what does it say? The Lord uses the illustration of birth. You need a new spiritual birth. And then he says, this is, this is almost, life is almost like the wind. And he uses this illustration in verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, where it wants to. And you hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it comes from, where it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Just as you did not participate, Nicodemus, in your own birth, I want to share an illustration with you. It's about the wind. Nicodemus, can you predict the wind? Can you control it? Can you manipulate it? Can you force it? Answer, no, 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 no. You can always tell. However, you can tell where the wind's blown, where it's been, where it's blowing, because there's signs of that. How many of you were around in 2014? I'm just going to use this illustration to explain it a little more. It's so impossible to control the wind. You can try it, but I remember 2014, uh, some people called it Snowmageddon here in Atlanta. In fact, I think Ron Carroll was stuck on the interstate for a number of hours, if not days. I don't know. Some spent a couple days before they got help. And here's the thing uh, about the wind. What happened is... Uh, the forecasters missed it a little bit, and so here came this, some of you were at work in Atlanta, and this snow, misty snow, turned to rain and then to ice, and then a sheet of ice covered the state, <laughs> at least the central portion of the state, and, and covered Atlanta and everywhere around here. And I remember then-Governor Nathan Deal, as he got on uh, the evening, uh, for, uh, evening news, and he kind of, in a way, blamed the meteorologists. I remember this well because I was sitting in my living room. Uh, this is interesting. And so he said, you know, if, if they would have told the town lost, I guess, millions in economy and all that because of everything that was slowed down. It was just everything was ice to a standstill. And, of course, the first person you blame is the politicians. And Nathan was uh, Nathan Deal was the governor. He said, "Now, now," he said, I, "I did the best I could with the forecast that I had." And I remember that evening as the forecasters came. I can't remember his name, who it was, but he said, "Now listen, the governor has more or less indicted us because we didn't hit the for we didn't get the timing of this. We didn't see how much ice was coming." And he said, basically, "We are not God. We cannot." I love it when a meteorologist admits this. It is not, he said, an exact science. He kind of got back at the governor. Because no one really can predict, force, control, manipulate the wind. All we can say is it, it blew there. We can see it in the trees. <laughs> Whitney, a couple of years ago, had a little minor, I say a little minor tornado. What's a minor tornado? <laughs> Came through and 
as much as she might have wanted to come out into her yard and say, hey, tornado, if you don't mind, my neighbor, if you just, no, she didn't do that. What happened against her will is that that tornado took out their garage and left the neighbor completely without a problem at all. The Lord is saying, this thing of salvation to be real, to be true, you can't just force it. You can't make God do it. You can certainly ask God, whosoever will may come, and there's invitations throughout Scripture, but if God truly saves you, it's going to be an inner work, and you will know it. You will know it by the spiritual wind, if I can use the word, that that moves through the new life that moves through you. And Nicodemus, when you get a hold of the fact that you're truly saved, there will be an, a transformative work in you. I was on a mission trip one summer, and a boy came up to me after the whole summer. I didn't know he was watching my life, but he was a, a peer of mine. We worked together, and we were on this mission trip as teenagers together. He came to me at the end of the summer, and here's what he said. His name is Richard. He said, uh, Lauren, I've been looking at your life all summer. You haven't known this, but I've been watching you. And I know to sign up for this mission trip, we both had to say we're Christians. And I wrote that on my form. But I've been watching you and the way that, the way that you pray, the way that you're concerned about others, the way... And I'm not trying to pat myself. I didn't know that he was watching me. But he said, whatever I have is not what you have. And I want that. How can I have that? It's not that. It's him. And when we understand that we cannot produce, manufacture a righteousness of our own, and when we come to Christ and admit that to Him, I said, Lord, I can't. I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do to erase this sin. But you came and died for me. You came and paid the price for me. Your blood pays the ultimate price for every sin of every sinner. And Lord, because you've invited me, I'm coming. Would you do this work in me? I ask you. We're invited to ask Him to save us. And guess what happens when he moves in? He changes us. He transforms us. And it's not that all of your inclinations to sin will go away immediately. There's a process, but there's a new nature in you. There's a new life in you. You all of a sudden are concerned about sins that didn't matter before. You are concerned about the loss that they too hear about Christ. You love the church more than you ever have, and you enjoy the reading of the Word. And there is this wind blowing through all the leaves and branches of your life, and you can say, you know, that's not me, because I'm not like that. It's the precious work of regeneration in me. Often I hear this passage as they argue about God's sovereignty and all this, and I've been asked, <laughs> a man asked me, why should there be a great revival in certain parts of the world and not others? Why would the wind blow there and not here? Why do children in India die without ever hearing about God? And some hear about Jesus every day in our Christian school. 
Why did you hear about the gospel and respond to it and your brother never has or didn't? My response is, let God be God. Just thank God that He knocked on your heart's door in time. Isaiah chapter 40, not to get into the weeds here, but Isaiah 40 verse 25 says, Who is like our God? That verse in Isaiah 40 is not a challenge for you to try to explain the wind, where it came from, where it's going. That, the challenge, who is like our God, is answered in the same chapter when Isaiah says, there is no searching of his understanding. It's not a challenge for you to try to explain the infinite wisdom and perfections of God. He does what he does because he's God, and thank God he's God. I don't know why he would ever save me or you. I don't understand that. That's not in my purview. I, I can't explain that. But I know he offers to you, while you're living under the sound of the gospel, a chance to respond to him. Why would God choose the Jew? Can you explain the Trinity? Why he would ever make heaven for a place like sinners? For a, place, for a place that would house sinners? Why would he make hell? The sovereignty of God in salvation is beyond explanation, but we can be sure, as, uh, as Abraham was, was told way back in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, the judge of all the earth will do right. So like wind, the Lord brings this illustration to Nicodemus' mind. You will see its effects in your life. It will be trans unmistakable. That's the point. And then the Lord kindly rebukes him. He kindly rebukes him in the next verses. You see the rebuke of the master teacher, verses 10 and beyond. Nicodemus answered and said, I, I still don't get it. <laughs> I raised my hand in Sunday school this morning. Brother Lee, I said, I still don't get it. <laughs> what do you mean? How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, here's your rebuke, Nicodemus, you are a ruler in religion. And you don't know these things? Everything that was written in antiquity, in the Old Testament for 4,000 years, I've hit this before, everything in the sacrificial system, everything in the clothing of the priest, everything in the protocol, everything, everything, everything Nicodemus has been pointing to a coming Savior. And Nicodemus, you have been teaching, you have been reading, and you're blind. Verily I say unto you, we speak that we do know. I hope that's your testimony. I'm I can't explain eternal life totally, how it happens. But there's been a change in me. It's because I've met the Savior. And he's saying, our, the disciples, we, we know because we've experienced this. It's not just a, a textbook thing. We, we, we've experienced. Of course, the Lord didn't need life. He is life. But the disciples knew by experience and uh, he asked the Lord, well, how, how, can, how can this thing be? The law only highlights our death. It only 
points to Christ. He's telling Nicodemus, you have not experienced new life. Verse 13 is a bit hard to understand. But basically, no man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Heaven, we're talking about eternal life and heaven and how to get there. And Nicodemus, listen to me. I'm the one that came from heaven. If anybody ought to know how to get there, it's me. And then another difficulty is found in verse 14. Have you ever read this verse and wondered, what is, what is it that the Lord is predicting His death in verse 14? As Moses did what? Lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up in death? I've often wondered, Lord, why in the world would you use <clears throat> this Old Testament illustration right before John 3.16? You ever wondered that? I wonder these things. And why a snake to reflect the lovely Lord Jesus? You have to remember the context a bit. <clears throat> You're listening well, so I'll tell you about it. It's Numbers chapter 21. <clears throat> the people are sinning again, complaining about food. Ever do that? Aren't you glad God's grace, living in the age of grace? And they, the Lord was so tired of their complaining spirit, He sent fiery, poisonous serpents. Many were dying. And so he said, Moses, <clears throat> I want you to do something. I want you to fashion a brazen serpent in the likeness of these serpents that are killing the people. And I want you to raise it up on a pole. And you want to tell the people one thing. Now, here's, here's how they can have a remedy. You ready, Moses? <laughs> you tell them that you need to uh, run from the snakes. You need to worship snakes. You need to figure out a and to venom for the snakes. You need to study snakes. No. He said, the sting of this creature is killing the people because of their sin. So make a brazen serpent, put it up on a pole, and you tell them something. That everyone who looks at the serpent will live. Not those who work to get better and do better, but everyone in their, <clears throat> in their this desperate situation, if they look, and there's where that song, some of you in the church know that song, look and live, <clears throat> my brother, look and live. Look to Jesus now and live. It's recorded in His Word, hallelujah, it is only that you look. Not work, not perform, not try to figure out why sin is so devastating and destructive and death-causing. You who are being attacked by, by snakes and rightfully so because of your own wicked sinfulness, you are, to, you are to not try to outrun the snake. You are to look to that symbol. Christ became on the cross the one who took the very the very the, the snake was a symbol of Satan, of sin, of destruction, of death, of all that. Jesus became sin for us, hence the picture. And this ruler of the law that knew the Old Testament, it ought to have clicked. Okay, so this is the third thing that Jesus is telling me 
It can't be my own righteousness. I have to simply, like a baby doesn't participate. The wind cannot be forced or coerced. This has to be a spiritual birth, a work of God. And then the simplicity of the remedy was not to work and live. Go to church and live. Do better and live. It was to what? Look, look and cry out, I need God in my life. I need God to save me. What a wonderful threefold, really, illustration to him as he looks at this wonderful historical reminder as God layers these truths to this self-righteous leader. We don't know. Did he get saved right here? We don't think so because of verse 11. He's, uh, he's told by the Lord that you have not received to, to, this, to this date our witness. Now, I believe we're going to see Nicodemus in heaven. I do because of, of, of what happened later in the historical context, how he defends Christ and then comes to his assistance at the crucifixion. I believe this is a changed man who did look and live. You're here without Christ this morning. You're thinking, I, I just got to do better, then Christ will accept me. No, he will not until you come and look at his finished work. Believe it, receive it, and become saved. Well, that's the context of the most beautiful verses, the greatest invitation in all the Bible. God, whosoever believeth in him, verse 15, shall not perish like they did in the wilderness but have eternal life, Nicodemus, it's offered to you. And then a verse that we could all quote together, for God so loved the world. We're talking about a, a law lover, one who tried to live the law the best he could, but the truth was, and everybody in Jerusalem knew this, that the Pharisees, as much as they tried to police the law, were hypocrites. They could not live the law. And people knew it. The Lord knew it. The law doesn't save. It is that thing that pierces the heart that brings us to Christ. And it was truly, I think, this, this thing in verse 16, this wonderful, life-changing truth for God, Nicodemus, you might not have heard this, so loved the world. He loved the world. And he gave himself for it, that whosoever, including you, sir, believeth in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't come to condemn the world. The Christmas story is just the part, part one of this. The incarnation led to the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then the, pro, uh, the promulgation. The promulgation of the, the that's what period we're living in, the gospel throughout all the world. And then there's the coming back of the Lord for His saints, the rejoicing glory, the reestablishment of the promised kingdom, millennial kingdom to David's descendants. And then, of course, the eternal state where we shall sing, not with the Methodists, excuse me for the record, but with all the redeemed. There may be some Methodists there, bless God, if they're saved, but we're going to sing with all the redeemed the songs from the heart of those who have been touched by the regenerating work of God. What a choir that will be.
No one can sing the songs of heaven like those who've been redeemed. And it is the principle of God's love, I think, that shattered finally that self-righteousness. He'd never heard about the love of, a, of God, not the law, the love of God, for God so loved you. I was reading about the transforming <clears throat> act of love for others that really changes changes others. And I wonder if in your witness, you have been overemphasizing. We can't ever overemphasize the law. It breaks us. It causes us to cry out, uncle, we're, we're sinners all. We need that. But what about the love of God that brings a remedy for sin? The late Dr. Howard Hendricks, Hendricks was a professor for half a century at Dallas Theological Seminary, he described how God's love was the net cast upon him as a young thug, really, he calls himself, growing up on the streets of Philadelphia. He said, there was a man by the name of Walt that found me playing marbles in the street. And that Sunday, or that day, the Sunday school teacher got involved with me. He beat me in every game we played. He said, I lost my marbles early in life. But when we were through, I wanted to follow Walt everywhere he went. He found 11 of us in the street. Nine of us today are in full-time Christian service because a Sunday school teacher just loved us. We've got our doctrine right, Bible Baptist, but... Like the Pharisees, maybe that's what we're rejoicing in. Our look, our creed, the connection we have to our history, uh, the fact that we've got it right in terms of our philosophy of ministry, but maybe the man on the street that lives next to you needs to know, for God so loved him. And you will be to him the window the expression of that, the love of God for us is Calvary's greatest attraction. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.